This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan. We live in a globalised society. The world has gotten smaller, especially over the past 30 to 40 years. Then came the COVID-19 pandemic. Borders were closed for a prolonged period and there was a reduction in international trade. This intensified the process of deglobalization, something that has been discussed in politics for more than a decade. How has the pandemic influenced or continues to influence the local process of deglobalization here in Malaysia? And what do we do to navigate this? That's exactly what the book titled Social and Political Deglobalization, COVID-19 Conflict and Uncertainties in Malaysia seeks to answer. This book is by Associate Professor Dr. Ku Ying Hui from University of Malaya, Associate Professor Dr. Ananda Raman Govindasamy from University of Malaysia Sabah, and Kavita Ganesan from University of Malaysia Sabah, alongside a host of other researchers. They join me on the show right now. Ying Hui, Ananda, Kavita, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much. And thank you, Dashan, for having us. Before we talk about deglobalization, what is globalization? So, well, uh, we all are very familiar with the terms uh, globalization. That is a term that we always hear about. So, um, generally, when people talk about uh, globalization, uh, we talk about, uh, we will think of uh, governmental policies that favoring free trade, open borders, the free movements of capitals, goods and services, um, eliminations of tariffs and um, and uh, what's interesting also, it is commonly being situated within the neoliberal um, framework. So there are, however, um, political critics of such um, uh, policies, uh, which can be uh, ideologically uh, distinguished. So first is the political left that uh, consider uh, globalizations uh, as a form of domination by the multinational companies, businesses, and um, at the same time, uh, it is also characterized by uh, limited uh, domestic policies and regulatory oversight. However, um, on the uh, political uh, right, they see globalization as a platform that could actually have uh, um, impacts on respective national sovereignties. So moving forward, um, in our book, we talk about uh, deglobalization. So while this concept is not uh, rel- it's not new actually, but uh, the discourse about deglobalization is limited compared to globalization. So in simple terms, uh, when we talk about deglobalization, it is um, regarded as the opposite side of the globalization. But uh, the term itself is actually a much more uh, interesting and controversial than it is. So um, generally, uh, in our book, uh, we use this term attributed to Warden Bello, uh, that um, he put forward the deglobalization as an alternative uh, proposal and uh, counterbalance to the increasing uh, entrenchment of neoliberal capitalist uh, structures. So although generally when we talk about deglobalization, we see the diminishing of the um, interdependence, uh, integration between specific units, typically just the nation states. But this term is really subject to a lot of uh, um, dispute. So there are also varieties of uh, looking at the deglobalization itself. For example, 
um, the drivers of deglobalization uh, include uh, also the trade imbalances, political pressure, uh, populism, high unemployment rates, as well as the international um, trade tensions. So to some extent, uh, if you really look at deglobalization, um, it is often considered as a, a rather negative. But in our book, we stress that uh, it really means um, uh, different things to different actors. So just one instance is that uh, we emphasize that this should not be confused with the discourse around the so-called anti-globalization movement. Right. So it is a very misleading name that uh, given its concern for international considerations uh, of the need to actually have a fairer deal for the deprived and the miserable. So that's one of the angle that we are using as well. What is happening across the globe right now that made this an important topic for you guys to study? What, why is studying deglobalization right now important? So if you look at our book, uh, we examine the periods of the COVID-19 in Malaysia. So that's where the uh, topic and the discourse of deglobalization was very much discussed, not only in the context of Malaysia, but uh, overall we witnessed the uh, uh, the trends globally as well. So in our book, uh, we examine the topics of deglobalization through uh, three perspectives, economic, political, and social. But we focus more on the social and political, hence the, top, um, the title of our book. So there are several historical phases of deglobalization. As I mentioned earlier, uh, deglobalization is not entirely uh, new. However, we also see the rebound in globalization as well. But generally, it is often talked about uh, uh, within the discourse of economy itself. So for instance, the US-China trade war that uh, placed a lot of pressures on the various world economies. Uh, so they're resulting into the increased trade tensions as well as uh, countries are using the protectionist uh, measures. That is uh, economically. So um, economic deglobalization, just briefly, it shows that uh, uh, the vulnerability when we talk about the global value chain, uh, as well as the diminish of the uh, flows of goods, uh, services, capital and information itself through the long distance market uh, transactions. So as uh, we see the economic deglobalizations, the increased regionalizations and localization actually emerge. So thus reducing the trade interdependence itself. So when that happens, uh, it pushed the investor to actually rethink their approaches. So that's the segments of the uh, economic deglobalizations uh, that we look into. Moving to the political deglobalizations, which is very interesting that being covered in our book is that it basically discourages international cooperation and uh, has resulted in the re-emergence of the nationalism to a significant uh, degree. And uh, given how the international cooperation has been significantly uh, curtailed, while a higher level of nationalism has emerged uh, regarding the COVID-19 related issues, uh, such as medical uh, devices, and the uh, vaccines itself. So uh, when we talk about political deglobalizations, it really exposes the flaws that we see in terms of global governance, uh, where the 
proliferation of the uh, organizations at the international arena that could actually lead to political fragmentation that complicate this cooperation accordingly as well. So uh, finally, if we look at social deglobalization very briefly, it further uh, reveals that the problems of the global income inequality that we witness, as well as whereby it resulting is in the uh, misalignment and the confrontations between the peoples. So what do you mean by, by that, you know, when you say misalignment and, and confrontation with the people? So when we talk about the uh, segment of the social deglobalizations uh, in our book, we have a few chapters that cover about the issues of migrant workers and refugees. So when the social deglobalization happens, all this confrontation between uh, citizenship versus non-citizenship and so forth, these are some of the uh, problems that we actually witness. Why is the height of the COVID-19 pandemic an important period to look at, to understand deglobalization? The peak of uh, this un unprecedented uh, COVID-19 has demonstrated that uh, the world is not that globalized as we thought. The rich, uh, powerful, uh, developed states firmly control and the distribution of uh, much needed um, COVID-19 vaccine goods and services. Um, in, in fact, uh, the smaller and the weaker states, or oh, um, the global south, uh, are uh, left alone to fend themselves, including uh, to overcome the shortage of resources uh, in the global supply chain. Um, I think understanding this period of globalization is crucial uh, and will provide us uh, a better uh, preparedness uh, for the future global uncertainties. Uh, in our book, I think uh, we, we managed to cover this uh, and, uh, and uh, primarily, and uh, this will be an excellent uh, case study to come up and uh, to understand uh, the future instability in the global supply chain as a whole. Ananda, I'm wondering if the COVID-19 pandemic sort of intensified trends um, that was or things that were already uh, moving in a certain direction. So, you know, because this this whole conversation about deglobalization didn't just happen over the past couple of years, it's been perhaps um, um, there have been rumblings and, and discussions around it for the for the past perhaps decade or, or longer. I'm wondering if the COVID-19 pandemic intensified um, the, the process and the discourse surrounding deglobalization. You're, you're right, actually. I, I totally agree with you. Um, it, it's just that uh, uh, COVID-19 provided a, a platform uh, for um, to the emergence of uh, various problems uh, linked to deglobalization and, uh, and also how we, we out of state, uh, develop and also the Global South react to this uh, development, actually. And I think uh, in our book, uh, many chapters have covered uh, uh, from the Malaysian experience that uh, it's vital for us to, to record this moment and firmly uh, to, to conceptualize the, in a broader concept of globalization and deglobalization. Um, as what uh, uh, Hingoy said, uh, the concept itself is, is a process actually. Okay, uh, globalization is there and uh, deglobalization is, is there as well, actually. Uh, so we are not against uh, uh, the, the, the deglobalization process, but the thing is, uh, deglobalization has uh, provided a platform to highlight uh, the problems with the globalization. 
as a whole. Lanka Sheraton took place right about the time the COVID-19 virus reached our shores and, and it was starting to gain prominence um, within public discourse. Um, what was the impact of this political realignment? In early 2020, while the whole, whole world were trying to understand, planning various strategies, uh, policies uh, to stop the spread of COVID-19, back in Malaysia then, the Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad designed uh, the Pakatan Harapan government later collapsed. A new uh, government supported by Amnu Pas uh, Satu and of course uh, Gabungan uh, Parti Sarawak uh, was formed and called uh, Parti Prekatan was created, headed by Muhyiddin uh, Yassin. Okay. This political realignment in the federal level uh, slow down the whole uh, Malaysian response to COVID-19. Later, uh, deglobalization trends, uh, such as lockdown, movement control orders, declaration of the state of emergency, further emphasized uh, this trend actually in, in, in Malaysia. Okay. And um, uh, I need to stress this, that uh, in many Malaysian health experts argue that uh, uh, Dr. Zulkulihama, then the uh, health minister, okay, under the short-lived uh, Pakala Harapa and current health minister as well, they had a better policy, had a better vision, and also had a better strategy to face the COVID-19. Um, and but the, but the thing is, uh, the Pakatan uh, Pakata Harapa collapsed and uh, was taken over by the Pakatan National. Um, and um, Pre-Captain National was formed to uh, need to redraw the whole policy, COVID-19 policies. Uh, and um, within a, a year, uh, Adnan Baba, the, uh, the former the, the Pre-Captain uh, National's uh, health, uh, health minister, was forced to resign. And later, Kairi Jamarino was appointed, reappointed. So, um, so Pre-Captain National could not give a, a proper uh, 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 emphasis in terms of uh, policies, in terms of uh, leadership uh, to counter the emergence of COVID-19. Okay. And uh, this political instability had a huge impact on our uh, slow response to COVID-19 pandemic uh, in comparison with the other ASEAN countries. Ananda, before we talk about economics uh, or the economic impact, right? Could you um, sort of um, sum up what all of this, right, tells us about deglobalization? So we talk about Lanka Sheraton, we talk about um, the shift uh, of health minister, ministers and, and how um, there was a change in, in strategy and approach to handling COVID, um, that one health minister was better than the other, um, and so on and so forth. What does that teach us about deglobalization? Uh, I, I think uh, uh, um, in terms of uh, uh, focusing on political leadership, uh, uh, we, we need a very transparent uh, and very progressive uh, leadership need to be in place uh, in order to take a major global pandemic as uh, COVID-19. And that eventually will, will, will solve uh, uh, the problem related to uh, social economic as well. Uh, so in, in the case of Malaysia, I, I think this, uh, this vacuum uh, 
has been uh, demonstrated uh, during uh, this period, actually, the COVID-19 period. And I think uh, uh, there will be also be a, a good lesson for current leaders uh, uh, to prepare themselves uh, uh, in the future uh, pandemic uh, and how they're going to overcome uh, such an unprecedented situation if arise in, in, in global order. So what would you say is the economic impact of deglobalization on Malaysia? I think uh, one of the uh, very important uh, thing about COVID-19, COVID-19 actually ex- exposed that uh, uh, Malaysians heavy reliance on, uh, on selected uh, uh, sector, actually, for example, tourism. Okay? Uh, and uh, this posed a major setback uh, due to the pandemic uh, restriction on uh, travel, including uh, lockdowns, uh, movement control orders uh, by various uh, countries in ASEAN and, and global as well. Okay, and, and also the distribution in the uh, global trade as a whole. Uh, and uh, and, I, and I think uh, this is a, a major uh, problem that we, we need to look into. Uh, Malaysia, uh, however, in Malaysian economic resilience was largely cushioned uh, by uh, Malaysian uh, diversified exports. Okay, that was the only one sector firmly uh, stood up, you know, to, 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 to cushion the, the Malaysian economy. Uh, and Malaysia is therefore still on the road to recovery. Okay, and, and uh, as a future uh, uh, recovery period, Malaysia faces a demanding task to improve the long-term prospect of economy, especially uh, tackling corruption, reform education, healthcare, and social protection system, and, and maintain Malaysia's uh, competitiveness uh, uh, for foreign uh, investment as well as, as a whole, actually. I think uh, these are the factors uh, uh, the current government need to, need to focus uh, um, to speed up the, uh, the recovery from the COVID-19. Kavitan, you worked on a few chapters in the book centered around indigenous communities and also education. Let's start with indigenous communities. Um, your book touches on the impact of deglobalization on indigenous communities in Malaysia, um, especially during the pandemic. Could you expand on this for me? As what uh, Yinghui and um, Anand were just saying, um, we need to look into the specific communities or the actors who were impacted by uh, deglobalization. And uh, uh, when we speak of the indigenous communities, it's very often easy to overlook uh, their plights, their challenges, because they are the communities who are living in the, some of the very remotest regions. And since this book, among others, it touches on Sabah. When you speak of Sabah, you invariably have to speak of the indigenous communities. You cannot overlook them. Yeah, it will not do justice to the book. So, When we speak of the indigenous communities, we are looking at what has first globalization done to them, even before exploring deglobalization. To the indigenous communities, especially within Borneo, you know, uh, Borneo is a dense tropical forest. So 
globalization came in the form of companies trying to, you know, expand and show their power. And that meant deforestation, massive deforestation, um, you know, opening up roads, uh, um, accessibility. Now, these communities' lives depended on the forest because that's where they got their food. Yeah, they were hunter-gatherers. Many of these, uh, uh, especially central Bonian people, were still hunter-gatherers, were still practicing uh, subsistence farming. So what globalization did to them was it opened up roads, it opened up uh, external or, or, or modernization, urbanization. So there was accessibility. They could move in and out easily. They Because forest was disappearing, they had to go and they had to rely on store-bought items. Yeah, which is which is shaking the very core of their indigenous identity. But what has deglobalization done to them? Deglobalization made them fall back to what they had always been practicing, which is their paddy cultivation method. They were doing that during globalization. Deglobalization just made them fall back on that. So if you see in terms of yield, in terms of harvest, yeah, we are talking about specific village communities. They were not, uh, their livelihoods in terms of paddy cultivation was not interrupted at all. The only issue they had was pest and whatnot, which was nothing to do with the deglobalization, movement control, order policy, nothing. It has got nothing to do because they were very, they were already a very inward looking community. Globalization impacted them. But during the pandemic, when we say that, you know, there is movement control order, they went back to what they were always doing. So this is why this book is very unique. Our book is able to unearth and explore and tell the audience outside that, look, there is still this sort of community. And uh, as what Inghu was saying a while ago, you can never, there is no one size fits all sort of a thing when we speak of uh, deglobalization. You will not be doing justice to that very policy. Yeah. For the benefit of listeners who may not be very familiar, right, what is the link between deglobalization and the movement control order? How do you draw that link? Mm. Right. Uh, deglobalization to, to a commoner. Uh, I'm not from a political background. Yeah? I'm not trained in politics. But to a commoner, deglobalization would be uh, uh, the complete contrast or the complete opposite of globalization. If globalization is opening doors, this is more towards, you know, moving inward and, and looking at how the state has got power to make its own policies. What happened during uh, the pandemic was that the state had to make decisions, come up with strategies. How are we going to control? How are we going to contain the spread of the virus in the first place? So the way that uh, 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 for a common person, the way pandemic and deglobalization comes together is how is the state going to help me instead of the outsider the external force coming in to help me, what is my government, my state going to do? So it has come up with these, uh, uh, um, you know, um, policies or it has come up with these restrictions. So how does, how do our lifestyles fit in within that? 
But in the case of the indigenous communities, that's always been their practice. That's always been something that they've been uh, practicing from one generation to another. So this is very uh, uh, normal to them, if at all we may use that word. On the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr. Ku Ying Hui, Associate Professor Dr. Ananda Raman Govindasamy, and Kavita Ganesan, editors of the book titled Social and Political Deglobalization COVID 19 Conflict and Uncertainties in Malaysia. We will continue to unpack this book after the break. Keep it here on Beyond Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan and on the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr. Ku Ying Hui, Associate Professor Dr. Ananda Raman Govindasamy and Kavita Ganesan, editors of the book titled Social and Political Deglobalization, COVID-19, Conflict and Uncertainties in Malaysia. So, Kavita, I also want to talk about technological advancements and, and education. To what extent do technological advancements such as digitalization, automation um, contribute or mitigate the impacts of deglobalization, particularly in the context of education? Because we did see an educational divide during the, the pandemic as well. This is another interesting that the book offers here. Yeah? Uh, when we speak about, uh, I was just talking about the indigenous communities and what is normal to them, yeah. We also have the other side of the spectrum or the other side to the coin, which is the policy or the restriction, movement control order, or even deglobalization is something that interrupts um, education, especially when we had to, um, um, you know, we had to resort to online education, especially those uh, uh, teachers who were teaching languages. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, Many of these languages in the context of UMS uh, were foreign languages. So can you imagine students were coming in first year, first semester students with zero knowledge of the language and they were being taught online. This is already a challenge. And these students were in their village environment with no internet connection at all. And there was this movement control order. You may have read in the newspaper there was this case of the student who had to climb up a tree, putting herself at risk. She may have fallen at any moment, you know, trying to get that uh, 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 connectivity. So we always have these issues. Every time uh, um, there is an online class where students, especially during the height of COVID-19, it was very difficult um, in terms of education, teaching and learning per se. Um, it's it's very easy to, to, to say that, you know, there's infrastructure we have provided, um, you know, who does not have mobile data? You know, we are some 20 years into the 21st century. Who does not own a gadget? I mean, it doesn't make sense. But the truth, the harsh truth is that there are people still without internet and most of these are the youngsters the college-going students, the, the, the younger generation who need internet the most, especially when it comes to teaching and learning. So uh, um, 
That is why our book gives all these different dimensions into how deglobalization or the pandemic itself had impacted one community is going back to what it has always been doing, unaffected. On the other side, we have these youngsters whose lives were interrupted and if uh, I may be so daring to say that um, were not be they were not uh, able to capture the gist of what was going on in most of our classes, you see. So so that really interrupted their education. Kavita, if you could unpack that a little bit more for me, um, you you bring up very um, pertinent issues um that have been plaguing and continue to plague um, um East Malaysia, right? We're talking about poor infrastructure, um, which, you know, people need to climb trees to get internet, to, to study for their exams. But is this a, a problem um, that came about because of deglobalization, or is it, you know, poor governance, poor investment in infrastructure um, and by the federal government and also massive wealth extraction by um, West Malaysia um, from East Malaysia over the various decades, right? I agree with you. I think uh, poor governance has resulted in this lacking, this 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 uh, um, extreme, um, you know, digital poverty that these uh, youngsters face. Um, and it's not just digital poverty. Um, it can be in so many other forms. You were just talking about inaccessibility to, to even go to um, school or to even get to the nearest town, you see. Uh, um, so this is a result of a long-term poor governance than just deglobalization. Deglobalization just made it obvious. It just put everything um, on paper and made us look at it, you know, you know, we had to face the truth. Otherwise, it's very easy to, to, to fall back and say that, oh, you know, everything is fine, everything looks pretty, but 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 this, you know, sort of magnified everything, you know. So I would say that deglobalization gave us a taste of the medicine, the bitter truth. Otherwise, we would not we we would not have been woken up from our complacency. Absolutely. So, Yinghui, um, I want to circle back to you. Um, how did the COVID nineteen pandemic and the shift towards deglobalization, um, towards you know looking inwards, um, how did that impact the relationship between the state and various classes in society in Malaysia? Yeah, um, just now, uh, as I mentioned about social deglobalizations uh, that intertwine with these uh, political deglobalizations, in our book, uh, we have divided it into three uh, sections. So the second section is particularly looking into this uh, question that you have asked us, um, actually. So the second section of our book, uh, we look, uh, we provide a closer observations into how this uh, deglobalization and COVID-19 actually undermine Malaysian democracy by primarily uh, uh, using the human rights perspective. So uh, we look at how it impacts the relationship between the state and different levels of society, where I earlier on uh, mentioned uh, we have uh, several chapters that actually look at 
uh, the migrant workers and refugees. So, but uh, we have one chapter that is very interesting is actually looking at the uh, bioconstitutional shift and the implication for human rights through the um, commodification of um, citizens' right to health, which uh, directly uh, talking about COVID-19, where we have a lot of issues in terms of the health policies and so forth. So uh, the author, uh, Pinyan Lao, uh, she argued that the pandemic has uh, basically uh, exacerbated the irregularities uh, in the provision of basic health care and has increasingly actually commodified access to uh, all these uh, uh, health care services. Uh, and these are the results of different factors, including deglobalization, internal political rivalry that we witnessed uh, during the COVID-19 and the reinterpretations of democracy along the populist lines that we have. So uh, we uh, also have chapters that looking at the migrant workers, as I uh, mentioned earlier. So uh, with different dimension, one of the dimension from uh, Sheila uh, David Michael is to look at the issue of foreign uh, labor and specifically argue that although the foreign labor force has significantly contributed to economic development, uh, but uh, they were significantly marginalized through the mistreatment and persecution during the COVID nineteen and the exploitation and including the vaccine discriminations that we have uh, observed uh, during the COVID-19. Uh, we also have uh, authors, Kwan uh, Yi and uh, Zaki, who actually look at how the mainstream media uh, actually uh, frame the issues of this um, uh, rising discrimination among the general public uh, towards the foreign workers as well as the refugees. So... Um, in, in addition to that, we also have uh, Aaron who provides a very detailed um, narrative in terms of uh, talking about the discriminations, arguing that the deglobalization itself not only enabled the increased operations targeting these communities, but it also actually resulted in a corresponding change in public perceptions that actually really tied up to uh, what the other chapters are talking about the migrant workers really. So you mentioned um, something uh, that caught my attention, which is the commodification of healthcare, um, and then you know, and how um, you know the the, the sort of um, the xenophobia and discrimination faced by migrant workers. In your book, you all also touch on how um, you know this period of deglobalization impacted protest movements, the ability for activists and and um, to organize and and so on and so forth. Again, I have to um, just to unpack that a little bit more. I, I do wonder when we look at, let's say, something like commodification of healthcare and a very reduced civic space, um, um, the impact towards protest movements and so on and so forth. If we go back to, let's say, Mahade 1.0, his tenureship, he is known to be, um, you know, the one that really propelled neoliberalism in Malaysia. There was an increase of, of globalization in that sense because of Mahade, but you can argue that that's when the commodification of healthcare begin because you have more private hospitals. And we also know that um, Mahade, um, he was very neoliberal, but he was also, when it comes to personal liberties, human rights, so on and so forth, he was a dictator. So how does that, um, how do you square that circle? or How do you make sense of that? So when we talk about the commodifications of the healthcare, um, the issues really is about when during the COVID-19, there was a need to actually renegotiate uh, by such as to suspend 
expand the constitutional rights. So there was a lot of issues that we discussed about constitutional rights, uh, restricting the movements of people, including, as you mentioned just now, the protests. So there are young people who went on the streets to actually protest, but they were arrested, or including uh, the PSM who actually went down to the, uh, uh, the hospitals and so forth to stage the protest. Uh, all related to the healthcare issues and the COVID-19 itself. But all these have implications for the different levels of societies here. So this is exactly what we are seeing, how the shift towards deglobalizations that impact the relationship between the state and the different uh, uh, various classes of the societies. So uh, moving uh, to these uh, um, issues about the protests and uh, movements that, that you talk about, uh, we also have one chapter uh, by uh, Vishnav that actually uh, talk about he conceptualized the youth activism in Malaysia during the COVID-19, arguing it from the lens of deglobalization, which was very interesting, whereby uh, that chapter itself examined the relationship between uh, illiberalism, deglobalization, as well as uh, the increase in activism also during the COVID-19 and engagement by examining uh, how the youth actually got involved with different types of protests while it is being restricted at that time. So during uh, the COVID-19s, uh, not only uh, in Malaysia, but across the Southeast Asia, we have witnessed that when the countries are tackling uh, the issues of economic recession, social upheavals and problems, there were also a trend that people actually noticed that is a significant regression towards uh, authoritarianism as well. So there was a lot of talk about that where individual freedoms were curtailed by the governments under the pretext of basically uh, using the language of uh, implementing COVID-19 prevention uh, measures, which are really the same uh, uh, symptomatic of the deglobalization that we're talking about. Uh, however, the trends actually uh, uh, continue until uh, today somehow using the different uh, uh, discourse and languages. So when we look at this, uh, the pervasiveness of the illiberalism and the durability of the authoritarianism over the course of the pandemic, which was uh, demonstrated by a rather high, toler uh, high degree of state intolerance actually towards open dissent, not only by the civil society groups, but also the media as well, which really uh, fuel and increase in terms of the youth activism uh, that we witnessed. For example, the Undi 18 and the Lawan protests that we see. So the frustration among the youth and the students really increased during that time. And we can see the widespread of the social media campaigns yeah, and the protests against the government in action and uh, also the draconian uh, legislation such as the resurrections of when they already repealed the fake news ordinance uh, following the emergency uh, proclamations and so forth. So there were many issues when it comes to uh, law and regulation. So all these movements have uh, shown uh, the uh, increase of public dissatisfaction during the COVID-19s where uh, large groups of the non-aligned, so this is very important to highlight the non-aligned uh, youth group because our politics have also changed uh, during the COVID-19 period, which was very interesting. And we have youth group that are really non-aligned with any political parties, but rather uh, they have a new sentiments of how they carry out their activism as well. So all these are uh, 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 indicative of a wider narrative of youth activism in articulating the new ways of uh, really engaging with the policy matters, regardless of their ideological position.
Ananda, the book, um, you know, touched on how deglobalization um, intensified or coincided with the rise of ethno-religious nationalism. But I'm curious um, if that is a consequence of deglobalization or due to decades of neoliberalism that have brought about massive inequalities, a reduction in government spending on the common good, um, which is social services such as healthcare, public education, so on and so forth. Healthcare is becoming unaffordable. Housing is becoming unaffordable. All of which um, is a fertile ground for populist backlash, um, something right-wingers can tap into, especially given the weakness of left-wing or socialist movements uh, and labor unions. And it's not just, we're not just seeing this in Malaysia, we're seeing this um, in the United States, in Europe, in India. Um, the rise of, of right-wing populist demagogue figures and, and the populist backlash that we are seeing, um, the orthodox um, um, view of religion and, and the extreme view of religion and so on and so forth, um, how do you um how much do you equate this to deglobalization and how much is it due to neoliberalism which brought about some of the biggest um inequalities we have seen in in modern history okay, on the rise of ethno religious nationalism yes uh, i agree uh, neoliberalism created a massive uh, inequalities uh, housing healthcare uh, and the problem with the redistribution of wealth. But um, deglobalization gave space for far-right movements and parties to a greater access to regroup, to promote, to manipulate, and to galvanize political support uh, based on uh, ethnic religious markers. And um, um, and that is a great example, actually, as what you say just now, from US to Europe to India, okay? uh, it's a global phenomenon. But again, in the case of Malaysia, uh, you can see the rise of past as a, as, as a political party. So uh, in work, in terms of political power, the state has a huge uh, mechanism to impose uh, from uh, movement control order to, uh, the, to um, uh, legalizing uh, uh, access to uh, various uh, citizen-based uh, programs. Um, so this political, the right-wing uh, political party has been given a, a free access to promote uh, their own idea, their own markers to the public. I think uh, uh, in, the case of, in the case of Malaysia, past is a very good example, actually. And, and, and I think uh, in, in our book, um, uh, many chapters, uh, especially the the first section F talked about this as part of the global phenomena, uh, which uh, need to be uh, uh, readdressed and 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 uh, and see how uh, this can be uh, been uh, curtailed in the future uh, deglobalization versus globalization process. And also for neoliberal, this is a good lesson actually uh, for them to relook their own policy. Uh, as uh, as we as I always believe that uh, uh, as a democracy, we a lot of things in democracy we le we learn from the from uh, from Marxists actually from from other uh, other weakness of democracies be highlighted by the by by the the, the Marxist perspective actually. I think this is an ongoing uh, learning process where uh, the, the globalization process uh, and the neoliberals uh, can learn from this. Uh, 
deglobalization process, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. So- On that note, Jinghui, um, as we w- slowly wind down this conversation, right, I, I, I want to um, jump off what um, Ananda just brought up into this next question, which is, there is an argument to be made that globalization, um, in terms of um, making the world smaller, um, in terms of making the world more connected, um, is great. And 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 in theory, um, makes it easier to build an internationalist movements um, of the 99%. Um, you want to have cross-border solidarity. It's it's much easier, um, you know, especially with social media and, and all of these things, right? The world does feel smaller. People are able to communicate. People are able to have um, solidarity that expands their own nation and so on and so forth. But on the flip side, in a global neoliberal capitalist system, globalization also usually means more power to multinational corporations and less power for the working class, especially in the global south. So, for example, many labor rights activists were against the Malaysian government signing the CPTPP free trade agreement as there are clauses which would bar farmers from exchanging and trading agriculture seeds. So this is just one example, right? Critics will also argue that there is a link between globalization in a neoliberal economic model and neocolonialism. They say we we are no longer colonized in the way like people have guns on your streets. European soldiers don't have guns on your streets, but we are colonized by um, through economic means by American multinational corporations, European multinational corporations, so on and so forth. How do we navigate this? This question is really interesting, uh, in fact, and uh, I think some of the uh, leaders have actually even uh, go to the extent of using the term imperial, the new imperialism to actually describe uh, such a phenomenon, uh, including our Malaysian leaders as well, uh, when they look at the uh, China's influence and, and so forth to the different nations. So the link between the globalizations and the neocolonialism is indeed a very complex and very much debatable uh, kind of topics. So as we uh, just now have explored in length about what is globalization, so if we look at neocolonialism, it's really uh, uh, looking at the continued um, economic and cultural dominance, basically, of the powerful nations uh, over the le- uh, the less developed ones. So, even in the absence of the direct political control, unlike the previous uh, time, but uh, now there were new ways of actually uh, controlling the other countries. So, how do we navigate really uh, the potential negative impacts coming from these two uh, relationships? Is um, I would just like to propose two uh, approaches here. Uh, this is exactly what you have mentioned about the trade agreements that are very controversial. One is the fair trade and ethical practices. This is really not a new uh, approach to actually come up with a solution, but this has been uh, um, always been talked about the right to developments, and uh, but this is the very con- uh, a controversial one. So uh, when we talk about fair trade and the ethical practices, basically is to encourage and um, support the free, uh, fair trade uh, practices to actually prioritize a more equitable economic relationship. While it is not to say that such an initiative is not being uh, done, but yet the world has become uh, a lot more complex today as we see the trade wars, the global crisis that has actually impacted on all these practices that by by right, all the state leaders are already aware they should really uh, cultivate such a 
um, ethical business practices that can actually ensure that the benefits of globalizations that are more e um, evenly distributed among the uh, nations and the different communities here. So in related to this, I think we also need to really look at the imbalances on in the global economic systems that we are having uh, right now. So they may include the, the pushing for a fairer international regulations and also that to promote fairness, transparency, um, sustainability and the trade uh, practices. And the second approach is really about global governance reform. I think throughout our conversations here, the governance, uh, this topic of governance keeps popping up in all dimensions, despite of whatever uh, um, uh, topics that we are talking about. So global governance uh, is really needed. Uh, so advocates for the reforms in terms of global governance structures to, to actually, we need to really ensure that decision-making processes are more inclusive and representative. This is where the ironics kicks in. We have the sustainable development goals, which all the countries are part of. And uh, most of the countries, including Malaysia, have been doing these voluntary national reports as well, regularly. So we are all aware the need for global governance reforms. But what is really needed is really to implement these reforms by not only producing the report, but by really acting on it so that we can really reduce the income inequality, improve the labour conditions, as well as to enhance the social welfare, uh, not only domestically, but uh, globally as well. So uh, I think it is really important to actually address the link between these two, globalization and neocolonialism, uh, neo but we need the collaborative efforts, not only coming from the states, but also the businesses, civil societies and the individuals. And all this have been long talking talk about during the process of sustainable development goals. So it is nothing new, but uh, we just have to really act on that. Yinghui Kavita, Ananda, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been speaking to Associate Professor Dr. Ko Yinghui, Associate Professor Dr. Ananda Raman Govindasamy, and Kavita Ganesan, editors of the book titled Social and Political Deglobalization, COVID-19, Conflict and Uncertainties in Malaysia. The book will be out in February. I will include a link in the podcast description, so do go check that out. This conversation is also available on podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, the BFM app, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.